Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we read uh, The Secret Commonwealth, the new book by Philip Pullman, which is part of his companion trilogy to the original His Dark Materials trilogy. Regular listeners will know that we are huge, huge fans of the original books. We read them as kids. Morgan hasn't seen the new TV show, but I have, and I was like, whatever. But the books are excellent. Um, We actually did a podcast on the first Book of Dust, um, La Belle Sauvage, last year, so you can check that out. Um, But the new volume just came out. It's very long, and this is kind of our most significant return to the original protagonist, Lyra Silvertongue. It takes place seven years after the Amber Spyglass, Um, so she's 20 years old, and it's a very kind of long and meandering story with quite a few different strands so I'd recommend reading it before you listen to this podcast we will be going into spoilers almost immediately but the general gist of it is that as a young adult now a university student in Oxford Lyra is going through kind of some emotional issues she's not as happy and adventurous as she was as a child and she and her demon pantaliman are arguing And the kind of main thrust of the story for her is that she and Pantalaimon have a falling out where he runs away because he believes that she has lost what he describes as her imagination. And he goes on a quest to find her imagination, which he kind of perceives in his own demonish animalistic way as having been stolen by this very cynical philosopher in Germany. So he goes off there and she goes off on a kind of separate quest, both to try and find him, but also tied up in some very complex world politics. And the this book kind of plays into a lot of kind of espionage themes, um, ideas about authoritarian government and religion, which obviously the other books too do too, but this one has a lot more kind of mature world building to do with the way the political structure of her world works. So in the previous book, they introduced this kind of secret society of uh, anti-authoritarian spies called Oakley Street, um, who met the previous book's protagonist, Malcolm Polstead, when he was a child. In this book, he's 30. He meets up with Lyra and they kind of this group of spies are trying to find out information about a mystical type of rose oil, which is now this hugely important substance in Europe and in the Far East. A lot of the magisterium and various sinister forces are trying to control this rose oil for reasons that are not initially clear. It's quite hard to summarise that plot, but that is basically what it is. It involves a lot of international travel. So it's not your traditional kind of fantasy quest structure. Yes, and the man who sort of becomes the head of the magisterium, which is the religious body that's sort of in charge of everything or becoming in charge of everything in a very authoritarian way, is obsessed with Lyra, which is part of the reason why she has to kind of go underground because these bad authority figures are coming after her. So as you say, it's very difficult to summarize what happens in this book because there's a lot of stuff. I think this does suffer quite a bit from the second book in a trilogy, issues. I enjoyed reading it, but I think that there's a lot going on in a way that could be a bit much. Not in the sense that it was confusing. This probably sounds confusing if you haven't read it, if you're listening to us, but if you're reading the book, you can follow it fine. But there were just so many strands going on simultaneously that it's sort of like, okay, and now we're back to this thing, and now we're back to this thing. And because the nature of the plot is that all these people kind of get scattered, and it's He's drawing on um, the Fairy Queen less explicitly than in the previous book, but that's still kind of his base text in the way that, in the way that Paradise Lost was in a much bigger way for the first trilogy. It's structured as a romance, so it's kind of episodic. People go and do something, and then they go on to the next place, and they meet someone else. There's not a ton of dramatic tension often, and I think that. Lyra's stuff particularly suffers from that because she's separated from her demon Pan and they normally have each other to bounce stuff off of. So all the characters are in different places and she doesn't even have the character who's normally part of her and they're literally talking all the time. There are individual moments in the book that are really, really compelling, which we'll discuss, but I think that structurally it's a bit difficult because it's like he's put everything together at the beginning and then he's breaks them all apart and I'm sure in the third book he's going to put them back all together but you have to kind of get through the middle where everyone's going in their separate directions and um, that can make for a bit of a slog I think that's too harsh like as I said I did read it 
very quickly and I enjoyed it, but I think that it, again, suffers from that kind of structural issue that a lot of second books, including The Subtle Knife, which is definitely the worst in the first trilogy, have. I, I loved The Bell Sauvage, and this one I felt much less positively yeah. towards. Well, they're, they're quite totally different, because uh, from what I recall of that one, which actually we should probably re-listen to our own podcast, but that book is obviously like the audience who are reading that are probably mostly adults because that's the original audience of the first trilogy. But it's told very much from a child's perspective and you have this interesting kind of uh, dual way of looking at things where you have Malcolm's sort of childlike perspective and what basically does feel like a child's adventure and it kind of includes a lot more old-fashioned sort of almost Narnia-like fantasy elements that weren't really present in the original trilogy. But at the same time, you can also see the build of a lot of political themes that become far more kind of visible to adults. And there was like a section that was kind of about sexual assault or grooming that was in that previous book, which was very much kind of more comprehensible to adult viewers without it being kind of unsuitable for kids. Whereas this book, because the central character is 20, it just feels like a really 20 year old person's story. Cause while she was this amazingly confident hero as a 12 year old, it is often the case that like you are more confident kind of at that age than you are at 20 where she feels sort of you know unsure in herself much more than she was before and kind of central to that is the fact that she can't read the alethiometer anymore um and it kind of ties into this whole idea of like what is truth and can we find out facts and what is reality and can we connect facts with spirituality which is like kind of discussed in very explicit ways in this book in a way that really kind of develops a lot of the ideas that you see in the original trilogy in an interesting way and I, I'm glad that it kind of it branches out from that because it does really feel like Philip Pullman has new things to say. It also it's like the initial conflict between Lyra and Pantalaimon is like this really great conceit that I think Morgan and I both really enjoyed which is that obviously they've had this falling out for a very long period for a variety of reasons but it's basically to do with the idea that Lyra just really wants to be rational and she's been living in this academic environment for her whole kind of young adult life. Whereas Pantalaimon is obviously a spiritual creature because it's a supernatural book and they've experienced all this supernatural stuff together, but suddenly Lyra is trying to be all serious and academic and obsessed with fact. And the thing that drives like a wedge between them is this book called The Hypercharasmians, which is a novel about being super rational all the time. And Pantalaimon hates this book, but a lot of undergrads are really into it and it's got all this like really fascinating language that like young people supposedly like and there's another book that's kind of mentioned by an author called Simon Talbot which is about how nothing is true and reality doesn't exist and it absolutely just feels like vulnerable young people getting preyed on by the ideas of Ayn Rand and he's very specific about that in the book in a way that I think is just very very well illustrated. Yes uh, I was cracking up reading the descriptions of this book that had become like a massive phenomenon amongst that no the one young literary the people. Title of. <laughs> I was like, this really rings true to me <laughs> as a young literary person. Um, that kind of specificity, I felt it's not that the way he writes about say the places she goes in Europe and then the Middle East aren't specific. Like he's clearly very precise about things, but the kind of, specificity with which he's writing about her reacting to that kind of thing felt somewhat missing from other parts of the book for me like that kind of social observation and character observation which is so right in that instance i was like oh yes of course as like like the young people at oxford are all obsessed with this fucking like philosophical novel like, yes <laughs> it's just it's also like doubly absurd because they live in this world with like talking bears and stuff <laughs> Well, but that's part of what makes it so yeah, no, perfect, precisely, right? Precisely. But that kind of granular social observation doesn't totally follow through in the rest of the novel, I think. And one of the things I personally responded to so much in the first book, which um, people who listened to that other episode of the podcast will certainly have recalled, is that it's all set in, almost all set in Oxford which I love because I have lived in Oxford and Philip Pullman lives in Oxford. And so the way he writes about Oxford is so great. Like he just knows that place and he understands it and he understands all the weird, you know, academic infighting and like, it just felt really, really right. And it's, again, it's not like when he's writing about 
you know, Turkey or whatever he calls it in the book, that you're reading it and thinking like, oh, no, this is totally wrong. I mean, I say someone who's never been to Turkey, but it's it didn't feel like particularly appropriative to me or like offensive in any way. It was just that it felt like he was biting off this massive thing and he the book couldn't necessarily like chew all of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, kind of what I felt was that because I find him a very evocative writer. And I think part of the issue isn't so much lack of knowledge, but just volume. Because yes. kind of like you were saying at the start of the episode, you know, this this book is perhaps too long. And it's certainly not something I felt while I was reading it. But the journey that Lyra goes on is so long and so extensive and goes to so many different locations that he doesn't spend enough time in each one for you to really get a good idea of it. And in some ways that does kind of illustrate the way that you feel when you're traveling from place to place really rapidly and chaotically. But I don't know if it's like really necessary. It might have been easier to tell that, that same story and like lopped off a hundred pages or so of her like traveling around various places in the Ottoman Empire being traumatized in one city a day. Well, if you think about it in comparison with The Golden Compass, where that's also a an adventure story, it's a travel novel. She starts in Oxford, but there's not actually a lot of it in Oxford. Most of it's in the far north. But and Svalbard, as he imagines it in that book, is not real. It's That's like the polar bear kingdom, right? Yeah. But it's basically... It's in like three locations. Yes. It's like Oxford, and then Svalbard, and then the the facility where the kids are being Yeah, Bolvanger. Right. And you get such a clear understanding of what all of those places are like. And obviously, like he's invented two of them. So it's not like he doesn't need to have lived in... Bullvanger, a place that doesn't exist, to write about it well. But because he has enough time to really get into the details, it feels really compelling. And um, this book is, there's just so much going on that I think some of that gets lost. And individual scenes in those various places can be really affecting. He's clearly drawing a lot on um, current political events like there's a scene where Lyra is on a ferry and they kind of run into literally uh, a refugee boat and so they take all of these refugees on board and obviously he's writing directly about the refugee crisis currently and I found that scene very affecting and then there's another scene that's clearly influenced by ISIS and then you know something else and it's just like one scene in the book and then he's on to something else and so it's not like he shouldn't be writing about those things or even that the whole book has to be at the, at the refugee crisis or whatever, but it does it lacks the oomph of a book that's going further in depth, right? Because he's going so quickly from one thing to the next. And so... Well, he's very suddenly trying to... And I think, I mean, he succeeds. He like successfully introduces kind of a way of thinking about world politics and kind of the way that they lead into that is through the rose oil because we're initially introduced to that idea because one of the girls at Lyra's college you know her father works in the perfume business and so she finds out that the rose oil trade is crashing and how it kind of shows the ripple effect throughout the world of something that only a few people are going to understand the real truth about and how because a small number of powerful people really want to control a specific substance all of a sudden then it can just toss the entire world into disarray and I think it does like a really good job of kind of illustrating that concept if you're someone who isn't used to thinking about the world in that way. See I found the rose oil stuff not particularly effective and I think this ties in with the fact that the bad guys I don't think work really. I I found the political stuff in a, a broad sense. I don't think it really worked and I think it's because again he's kind of trying to do too much and also just like introduces stuff very suddenly. I, mean, I right? didn't find Delamere frightening. So like kind of the, the, the central two villains are Delamere, who we discover later in the book is Lyra's uncle. So Mrs. Coulter's brother from France. And he's kind of like a high up diplomat in the magisterium as a religious figure who kind of essentially engineers a situation where he becomes the Pope or the president. And then the other person is someone who is of Lyra's generation and he is another alethiometer person and he's this like mean like 19 or 20 year old <laughs> who's the son of a, a man who Malcolm killed as a child in the previous book. And I, I actually quite liked the Bonneville character because I felt like he was a type of character that wasn't present in the other books and is like a realistically 
unpleasant person who I really did feel like there was a real danger that he might hurt Lyra or Pantalaimon, but at the same time he was kind of pathetic and laughable because he was immature and self-absorbed. Whereas with Delamere, it was kind of a more generic sort of manipulative villain and we didn't see him doing anything that was that felt personally hurtful to me in the same way that villains in the other books were really scary. Yes, so I liked Bonneville, the young one, too. And I think that he should have done more with him because he's, it's like the Kyra Ren type thing, right? Where he's this, Yeah, like, he's a good foil. He's a, he's this <laughs> shitty little boy who really wants to, like, control women and is really, really insecure and... Is a, that's a way of commenting on sort of current sociopolitical stuff in a more subtle way that I found really effective because he clearly is reacting against stuff happening on the internet right now, but not in as explicit, not in such explicit terms. And so I thought that really worked, but I thought he should have been focusing more on him and less on Delamar, the older character, who, as you say, is just kind of like, sure like whatever and i really did not like that he was liar's uncle which felt like such a classic like prequel sequel thing of being like um what can we find here ah yes a family member let's do a family member who you've never heard of before managed to restrain himself from because that was the only example of that in this book admittedly because the other points where they tied stuff in i was like oh it's actually pretty cool that like alice who was the mean lady who brought lyra up in the kitchens at oxford is alice in the previous book i was like i quite like that but yeah yeah he does, we don't really need the uncle to be the uncle no and i felt the similar way about the rose oil which i mean i didn't hate it but it felt similarly to me like Oh, by the way, there's this thing that's driving like large parts of the world economy, and it's really important to dust also. And uh, it's um, now it's cut off, and it's gonna ruin everything. And so you have to fix it. And I was like, we've never heard of this before, and you need to have something that's sort of similar to the first series, but not the same. And so you've invented this, and it just felt very forced <laughs> to me in both cases. And those obviously the the bad guys and the rose oil are all kind of connected to each other. And so the whole sort of plotting apparatus felt to me like he was straining something and again was repeating certain things from the first books, not in a totally direct way, but it was like, oh, now Lyra has like an evil relative who wants to kill her. Like, where has this happened before? And the stuff with the rose oil was much less effective to me than the sort of uncanny objects in the first series because I felt they were introduced better and felt more sort of potent and or frightening. And I he's trying to do a different thing with that in this because he is trying to do this big larger commentary, but it didn't feel like it really worked to me, partly because it's sort of disconnected from the main characters in an emotional way yeah because it's like like something where we basically don't fully know exactly what's happening until the next book comes out it's more just like this is this background element that is clearly really important but like you said it's like it's not got this emotional connection because it's this sort of academic thing yes you know there's people are studying it rather than it being like here's this mystical MacGuffin that's a big knife (laughs) whereas right and whereas the first whole first series they're trying to sort of figure out what dust is or like the significance of dust and it's introduced literally in the first scene when Lord Asriel comes in and is giving this presentation. And it has this unbelievable potency within the yeah. narrative, right? Like you get that it's this this massive thing that feels really important. And then the knife is te- tied to that and also is terrifying because it can kill you or anybody or like ruin the universe. And then the alethiometer also is feels very sort of powerful and intoxicating. And this was sort of just like, oh yeah, by the way. Like, and it was like, I don't really know about that. Like, sure, sure. I mean, the philosophical stuff in general in this book, I'll be curious to see where he lands in the third one. There, We have a lot more to discuss about the philosophical questions, but it felt, I I couldn't totally grasp what he was saying. Whereas with the first series of books, it's so clearly about a particular thing and not that they can be boiled down to one statement, but like they kill God at the end. It's pretty clear, right? But then in this, it's kind of like the antagonists are the people who are trying to kill God because it's like a different idea of what God is because 
obviously the kind of the villains of the original books are just very clearly this structured religion and the idea that this religion has like ruined Lyra's world and is now trying to control the rest of the universe. And even though Lyra was victorious in the original trilogy, you know, this book shows how the authoritarian regime of the Magisterium is still present, which, you know, it kind of would be because it's not like they've gone and systematically restructured their political system. (laughs) But in this one, it's like, it almost felt to me like a reaction to sort of extreme atheism sort of situation because the whole message of this book is that Lyra has lost part of herself because she's so keen to detach herself from spirituality and Pantalaimon kind of represents her spiritual side and you have this situation where she's being torn between really being invested in believing stuff like this book like the Hypercharasmians which argues for a completely rational view of the world and then personally experiencing things that can't and shouldn't be explained and it uses also the Egyptians as like to introduce her to the idea of what's called the secret commonwealth. So it's like the secret commonwealth is, you know, fairies and spirits and what have you. And it kind of includes the world of demons. And the people who explain her that to her at first are Egyptian characters. And that's what actually one of the interesting things I noticed reading this book is that there's actually quite a lot of connections between this and the new TV series, which on the whole, not very impressed by the TV show. I think it's just like, okay wouldn't particularly recommend it but you can really tell that Philip Pullman was involved in that because if you're watching that show and being introduced to the story from there the Egyptians immediately have a much larger role in Lyra's life in a way that they do in this story and kind of it presents the Egyptians and the magisterium as two opposing forces um so the Egyptians are sort of the rebellious figures in the tv series whereas in the book they were had like a a bit more of a kind of a side role in Lyra's quest to go to the north. Um, And also they've got this idea of scholastic sanctuary, which is a really major part of the TV show that doesn't appear in the original books. You know, it's fairly self-explanatory. It's like the fact that the academics at Oxford are allegedly protected from being rounded up and arrested by the secret police for thinking the wrong thoughts. But it's always been clear throughout the entire series that the academics are constantly under scrutiny from the church who are very keen to restrict certain types of information. And Lyra is always a threat to them in some way, either because she can be the alethiometer or for kind of more complicated reasons in this book. Yes. I mean, I haven't watched the show, so I can't comment on that element although it's interesting that they folded some stuff in i was initially excited about the show because the casting seemed good and then uh read your review and others and thought i don't need this so no thanks and i think you're definitely right about the sort of commentary here being largely about reactions against like new atheism and sort of that extreme atheistic attitude and part of what was always a bit silly about the way people reacted to his dark materials was the sort of hysteria about it being this being anti-religious it's like, it literally text. ends with them being like we want to create the republic of heaven and it's sort of the message at the end is intensely spiritual like i always felt these books were very spiritual yeah and people always sort of reacted against these books as though they're hysterical anti-religious texts and in certain ways that's true they're primarily against the catholic church let's be real but it's not like he is saying that any sort of spiritual belief is bad or stupid and i think part of what makes those books great is that they can speak to i mean you could read those books and still find a lot to like about them as a I think religious person in many ways but I think like I'm an atheist and I think that they really speak to my vision of the world and it influenced it strongly as I was a child or if you just have sort of more general spiritual beliefs that he's speaking a lot to that too so there's a lot going on in them that's more complex than just like (laughs) you shouldn't believe in God like that's not yeah it's like oh they kill God at the end and it's like no that's not really And it's like also, especially the parts in the Amber Spyglass where it's like the whole sequence where they're on that alien world with the Malefa, which is just like, it is, they've gone on this kind of non-organized religion type of pilgrimage where they have a spiritual awakening and all of the stuff with the alethiometer is very sort of to do with meditating and getting in touch with other ways of thinking, you know. And then this book just makes it completely clear that the idea of being purely rational and unemotional is like an evil and terrible and destructive way to live. Yes. 
But I think the problem with the book is that it's so big that what he's trying to say gets kind of diffused and muddled throughout what he's doing. So by far the best parts of this book is everything to do with the demon characters and discussing that part of this world and then specifically the scenes with Pan once he's left Lyra and is sort of traveling around Europe. And those are the most explicitly sort of philosophical that's the most explicitly philosophical material on the novel and in many ways the most emotional part of the novel. The best scene for my money is when Pan, who's gone on this quest to find um, Gottfried Brandt, who's the author of this novel that is sort of taken over the young people of the world, and he finds him and says he wants to, you know, get Lyra's imagination back, and immediately realizes that there is something very wrong with this guy because... Oh god, such a creepy scene. <laughs> and he's got this young woman who's like... A weird Lolita girl in yeah, his garden. like playing in the yard. And then his his demon inside is just this like miserable creature. And this guy is very, like he never goes outside. And it's very obviously just beyond miserable. And they have this conversation that doesn't like resolve in any kind of cathartic way because that would feel wrong. But Pan kind of realizes that like this is not what he was expecting to get into like he was sort of i don't think he has some sort of vision of exactly how this is going to go down but he it was it wasn't this it wasn't what he winds up finding and it's really really just sad and then you wind up finding out later and this is so this is we're now just in pure spoiler territory so i guess if for some reason you're still listening to this and haven't read this book you should stop that there is this black market trade further east of people whose demons have left them in the way that Pan has left Lyra and they buy demons from this these black market sellers who have had basically sort of extorted these poor people into selling their demons. Yeah. And then Godfrey Brand has that's what has happened with him. And so all of the stuff in the book about people's demons leaving them, which is not something that's in the original trilogy at all, is really, really affecting and interesting. And it ties in with the first book where you see people, um, one of the characters like beating his demon, which isn't something that you see in the original books. And all of that stuff of where you're seeing these sort of new, strange, often disturbing relationships between these people and their souls, basically, I found so compelling. Yeah. But that kind of philosophical stuff without necessarily talking about it in a philosophical way was way more interesting to me than the like large political thing he was doing. Like that felt non-effective. But when he sort of dug in in a more granular personal way to these stories and particularly with Pan, I felt like he was getting at what he was trying to say much better at least to to me because then you really feel the emotions of these people right and like the worst thing that can happen to you is is this right i mean i also really i liked both you know (laughs) i found all of the kind of the growing sense of political dread very effective you know obviously it has very clear parallels to current politics while also tonally feeling like a very sort of I don't know, like early or mid 20th century kind of setting just because of the kind of semi-historical setting of Lyra's world. Um, But you have all these scenarios where it's like illustrating how the police and the military are cracking down more and more across Europe and people who are more vulnerable are immediately preyed upon and people who previously had what they thought were very safe jobs are suddenly, you know, kicked off into some really uncertain and terrifying position. But to do with the demon world building, it was so interesting to me because like obviously you and I and millions of other fans of these books have spent so long kind of thinking about the original books but in all of the reams of fan fiction that have been written about demons um, it just goes to show that like a truly original mind is always you know better than the thousand monkeys of the typewriters even though usually I'm very much like fan fiction writers always can because of the the mass will of the people can usually create something fresher but it's like no because no one has ever considered like the true wider ramifications in the way that this book does because obviously 
in the original trilogy, it makes sense that Lyra and Will think that they are the only people who've been through this experience of separating from their demons, you know, apart from the witches, because they're very young and they don't have much world experience. But because Lyra is traveling so extensively and having to live in secret and having to be on the kind of outskirts of society, she is coming in contact with all these people who also have been separated from their demons. And it's kind of viewed as a very easily visible form of of just disfigurement, basically. There's people describing her as disfigured. People are very alarmed to see a person without a demon, which of course she would be. Things that would actually make sense. Because of course, if like Lyra was able to separate and we see, you know, the magisterium in the in the first book kind of separating children, then of course there would be all these other things happening along those lines. And you get like a really interesting kind of distribution of characters who are separated from their demons. But um, just to go back to Mr. Brandt for a minute, the old disturbing man. I was quite intrigued by Philip Pullman's attitude to old men in this book because we're going to kind of talk a bit later about how there's some perhaps ill-advised choices done with regards to Lyra's role as a young woman but I think this book had like quite an intelligent view of the way old men are kind of portrayed because obviously this is a world which is more sexist than ours in a kind of like everything is 50 or 100 years in the past sort of way but um, there's like a very clear divide between the older male authority figures you have in this book, which is much more nuanced than the sort of, oh, here's like an old Gandalf guy you get in a lot of fantasy novels. And it's like you have some characters like my beloved Farder Coram, the Egyptian, and also there's a new character called Giorgio Brabant. And then in the earlier books, there was the Master of Jordan, who are all sort of very paternal figures to Lyra, but very much want to nurture her and give her the knowledge and skills and often just sort of basically weapons and money to like help her be independent and learn about the world and be happy and then you do occasionally have like unpleasant predatory older men but I think the thing that Philip Pullman really seems to come back to again and again is the idea of quite foolish and weak old men who are in a position of tremendous power and shouldn't be and there were two characters in this book that really directly called back to the way God or, or the authority is viewed in the Amber Spyglass, where it's just like, oh, here's this, you know, angel who's actually no different from any of the other angels. And it's just this flawed, old, decrepit man and is basically senile. And everyone is just treating him as God. And they've created this whole structure around him that's really damaging. And in this one, you see... Um, the character Saint Simeon, who is essentially being crowned the new Pope, who has no idea what's going on around him and is just like a really clear connection with the authority in the in the Amherst Spyglass, right down to the point where when he's eventually inevitably assassinated, his corpse is literally held up by all the ceremonial robes he's wearing. And I was like, it's on the nose, but I like it. And then you have this Brandt character who's this hugely impressive literary figure until you actually speak to him and you realise that he is like really mentally ill and is projecting that onto all these people and really damaging everyone emotionally by insisting on making them listen to him in a certain way and believe what he's saying when in reality it's all just his own neuroses because he doesn't have a demon and he wants everything to be thought of really rationally when in fact he's completely irrational yes and so you have the some of these just really pathetic old men and then the like the new master of jordan whose name i cannot recall who is sort of middle-aged and evil (laughs) Yes. Who basically comes in. Powerful businessman. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a sort of range in a way that I think is really effective. I mean, he understands power, basically. Yeah. Which obviously is true from the first trilogy, also, but that definitely carries over here in a way that almost always works. (laughs) Not always. We'll get into that momentarily. Um, Is there anything we want to say about the rest of the novel before we get into the worst part? Have we forgotten anything? <laughs> well, I think this is just going to tie in, which is that there's a lot of yeah. John le Carre spy hijinks. But I think now it's time to talk about Malcolm, which I kind of, I almost wish Morgan hadn't warned me about beforehand. Basically, this book brings Malcolm, who was 11 years old in the previous book. Now he's 30. He's an academic, but he's very worldly. And he also works as a spy. And I quite like him independently as a character. But... um Philip Pullman makes the puzzling choice to have him fall in love with Lyra, who, I mean, I'm not philosophically against the idea of a 20-year-old and a 30-year-old dating, but the context in which they did this makes no sense. (laughs) And also he's like, he literally describes it as like, oh, he's in love with her. And I'm like, you're using the phrase in love in a very, very enthusiastic sense here. They've met each other like three times. (laughs) I, I genuinely am baffled by this. 
I'm so confused. So I actually found him as a character quite dull in this book. I like him because he's the type of character I like. He's very competent. We get lots of kind of examples of him thinking in a very calm and logical manner during chaotic and difficult situations and being a cool spy. Yeah. Well, like, what's his personality? I couldn't tell you. Competent? (laughs) I have no fucking clue. And I love him in the first book when he's a little kid. And so irrespective of the stuff, weird stuff with Lyra, I I just was like, who is this? How is this person connected to the that great little boy? I have have no clue. I could not tell you. But the romance thing, I mean, I, so I saw these like tweets going around of people, you know, people will like take a picture of a page or screenshot from an ebook being like, oh, this man writing this gross thing about a woman. And I was like, oh, here's another one. And then it was from this book. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I want at all. I hadn't started reading it yet. And I mean, it's definitely creepy because the context is that he was like tutoring her for a period of time when she was 15 or something. And it didn't really work because they didn't get along or she didn't like him. And then they encounter each other again once she gets involved with the authorities and kind of. Yeah. And then has to go on the run. And it just doesn't, it was, I mean, it's creepy, but it was less the creepiness that bothered me than the fact that it makes no fucking sense. Yeah. Well, it's like we were talking about this before we started recording, right? Because everything apart from this one detail of this unrequited love from Malcolm to Lyra makes sense with their two characters, right? Because I feel like I actually had a better idea of Malcolm's characterization than you, I think. But also, even despite that, it is very much portrayed as a situation where Lyra is a very uncertain, not immature, but definitely like a young person, you know, and her problems are her own. And the, the book is about her kind of trying to become strong and improve herself and find herself in a very literal way and be independent but also find emotional support in other people in a way that really fits in with the previous books and then Malcolm's storyline you know he's a much more mature person in every way he's he just seems older he is living in this different world and after encountering her a couple of times he's describing himself as in love And it's just very puzzling to me because it's like Lyra is, of course, a really compelling and charismatic character. And I can absolutely believe many people falling in love with her. And in fact, the book kind of remarks upon people finding her attractive. But Malcolm, like he's this really sensible sort of like stolid person. And they don't spend enough time together for that to really... They barely speak to each other. They literally exchange like three lines of dialogue. And then you have this long paragraph where he's like, he's in love with her. It's like... Since when? What the It actually fuck? made me think quite a lot of the, um, not of the original books, but of Philip Pillman's Sally Lockhart books. Um, did you ever read I those? I read them, but I was, it was so long. I was like yeah. you know, 12. I don't remember I read them. them. I liked them, but like I didn't, they didn't leave as lasting an impression. And I mean, they're just, you know, they're not as kind of wide reaching. They're more sort of, um, you know, Victorian penny dreadful pastiche books about a female detective and her friends. And um, kind of one of the key storylines of those is that Sally has this really passionate first love and she loses him and then in the later books she gets together with this much more kind of solid and dependable older man which is like a less passionate love affair but is like kind of her second love and I was just like is he mapping that same relationship structure onto Lyra here? I'm not closed off to this relationship happening in the next book if it is illustrated in a way that sells it to me but kind of the initial point of Malcolm falling in love as we've said several times now, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, in its defense, there is the idea of Lyra being attracted to him at the moment is like virtually non-existent. There is a couple of hints where she kind of realizes that someone hypothetically could be attracted to him, but she's not like pining after him or anything. But she is like, thinks about writing to him all the time. And then there are a couple instances where she gets letters from him and it's like really like anxious and emotional, and whatever. And I was like, what the, f- What? What I mean, the way happening? the only way that was making sense to me was me just thinking it's like he is one of the few people she can trust and she's just really glad to get a letter from anything. But the idea of that, like it almost feels Stockholm syndrome for that to be the basis of her falling in love with him later. If she is just thinking of him as like, oh, he's the only person I could reliably get letters to while I was on the run and really traumatized. <laughs> the books I was thinking of were um, the Tamara Pierce books, the Wild Magic books, where the protagonist falls in love with her teacher and i think that with some people this was not popular 
maybe if I read them now for the first time, I would agree. But I read them when I was 10, so I was fully on board. But she takes four whole books to build up to this. And then when they finally kind of do get together, they basically argue about it for like 30 pages because the teacher's like, this is wrong. We can't do this. And the protagonist is like, I don't care. (laughs) And so it's this like long thing with like lots of, you know, romantic moments. Will they, won't they? Where she, she knows, she knows how to write a romance, so she knows what she's doing. And so she builds up to the thing and then they actually talk about it, which is healthy and sensible. And to 10 year old me, seemed great. I was into it. Whereas this, it's literally like, oh, and we're uh, two paragraphs from the meeting and he's in love. And you're like, and also there's other, it's that thing where like other characters remark on someone being in love. It's like a trope, which I find very unnatural when someone's like, oh, you're in love with her. And it's like the fact that another character is able to notice that he's in love with her. It's like, you're having to try and convince me of something that isn't there. Yes, absolutely. It was very, very awkward. And obviously people talk about their personal lives, but the way it was executed in this case was very unnatural. It really, really strained my credulity about the whole thing. And I just didn't understand why. He clearly wants to show her moving on from Will, which is fine, because obviously like you yeah. can't stay hung up on that kind of thing forever. But it just made no sense. And it felt to me, I feel like I, I've been saying this multiple times about things we've talked about recently, but it felt so much to me like he had this idea for however this is going to end. Obviously, I don't know, but we can sort of speculate and imagine. (laughs) And that he was like, okay, well, therefore, I must write to that. And instead of actually... It would be kind of fun if the third book was literally like, Malcolm realizes he's not actually in love with her and he's made a big mistake. (laughs) It's like, actually, I was really in love with the idea of Liar. I just like pulls the rug out. It's like, guess what, bitches? (laughs) I mean, we can but hope. I mean, people writing all the time come up with an end and then you work backwards like that's normal. But if you can feel it this much, that's a big, big problem. And based on the reactions I saw from everyone, uh, people were not happy. So didn't seem to work. Didn't seem to work at all. I don't get it. And it didn't ruin the whole book for me. I'd be open to it if it was like built up and... If, like, he had decided at the end of the book, after they'd exchanged a bunch of letters, that he was in love with her, fine. Right. Deciding at the beginning of the book, sheer madness. <laughs> right. And then they barely even exchange letters? Like, it was No, that's just... the thing. It's like, you have to have some more letters in there. Yeah. It's very, very odd. She also, like, has dreams, clearly, about his demon throughout. I don't understand why he did this. He's not someone who I associate with this kind of no, tomfoolery. No, and it didn't even make me think like, oh, he's clearly gross. I was more just like, what happened in your brain? What yeah, because he's actually very good at writing romance and relationships. I mean, in this one, we actually get like a lot more of kind of like troubled romantic relationships as well. And about halfway through, I was like, I feel like there's been quite a lot of um, unflattering depictions of gay men in this book. Where's my unflattering depiction of a lesbian? And we got one. <laughs> and uh, just to be clear, I don't, I don't think that he's homophobic. I think that everyone in these books has really bad relationships because yes. it's like all these stories are people who are really fucked up for one reason or another. Um, and like, obviously anyone who works for the magisterium and is like in the closet is inherently really fucked up. And they've got like a couple of examples of like younger men, like manipulating older men because they're attractive and that sort of thing. And I was like, oh, it would happen, wouldn't it? And then later on you have this sort of princess character whose demon fell in love with another woman, which was like a really intriguing story to me. And I was like, great. That was one of my favorite parts of the book. I loved that part. And that also felt very, I I just wanted more of that in general. It felt like that was the kind of um, romance in the classical sense of the word, right? Yes. where you kind of meet someone and then they tell you this like amazing story and it itself is as engaging as anything else going on in the larger story. And then you kind of move on. And I felt like a lot of the other episodes didn't really live up to that. And a lot of them weren't like someone telling a story. It was like Lyra just having an experience, which is fine, but I think that kind of thing where she's hearing this incredible story from someone was really engaging to me because that story was so good. And if he's trying to sort of do this illustration of this phenomenon of demons leaving people, that doing it by making you 
really feel this woman's plight was very effective. And she was just a real character. She was yeah. really something. So, yeah, it just felt... I mean, I enjoyed it, but it felt kind of like a miss to me. I'm very curious to see what the what he'll do with the next one. As I, as I said at the top, the middle volume, always a problem. So and it's, it's a mystery. Yeah. Anything else? We Have we covered it all? I yeah, think. I think we've covered everything. Apart yeah. from, I kind of wanted to just say I really liked this book's attitude to travel, which felt very European and British in a, in a sort of way that maps onto the time period when Philip Pullman was alive and before, you know, because it's like the way we experience travel is very different now from the way it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And this felt a lot like Casablanca to me, you know, there were a lot of scenes that were very much like Casablanca, which we actually did a whole episode on. It's a very politically relevant film in the same way this book is very intentionally politically relevant. But it's like the the idea of there just being this whole culture of people who are constantly traveling, but the travel isn't easy. So you build up the travel muscles, you know, you understand how to do things, you understand how to speak the right languages and how to order food and you know, figure out the correct social skills to get by in really alien situations. And I think a lot of the people who are reading this book are not going to have had that experience because, you know, A, we live in the internet era and B, we're living quite privileged existences where our travel is not really by necessity and it's sort of couched in a lot of things that are designed to make things safe, but are also you know, quite sterile. And I don't kind of mean that as one of those people who's like, oh, I like to think of myself as a traveler rather than a tourist, because I am absolutely a tourist who is not an adventurous person. But that's kind of part of why I'm always really interested to read types of books like this. And it's why I was thinking both of Lakari, but also this is the first one of Pullman's books that really reminded me a lot of um, historical novels like my beloved Lyman, Lyman Chronicles, because there is a lot of historical books that really kind of focus on the international community and the kind of diversity of people who were traveling around Europe and the various parts of continents that are like stuck to Europe um, during the kind of pre-20th century era. And that was very much kind of the mood of this book. Yeah, I mean, I have always loved this sort of pseudo-Victorian-ness of these books. They're definitely not Victorian, but they're influenced by that or like early 20th century attitudes and he actually makes some references to more modern sounding technology in this book than in previous ones yeah. which makes sense since time has passed because but. there were there were helicopters in the original one because i remember people were really surprised there was like oh there's helicopters in the intro to like the historic materials show and i was like there were always gyrocopters in the books <laughs> <laughs> but in this one you do see them kind of like you know there's a point where someone has like a microphone and yes, stuff that was that was it it was the microphone that yeah. i was like oh my god like who has a microphone <laughs> um but obviously a lot of people now are sort of like, don't know how to write about smartphones or whatever. And so find refuge in writing about the past. But with him, it never feels like he's avoiding something. It feels like no. he's deliberately engaging with something in an interesting way. And I agree, even if it felt like there was too much placeness happening in this, that the way he wrote about that sense of displacement and getting from one place to another and being an other in a foreign place was really intelligent. And just kind of the importance of social skills. Because like this whole, like this is like the ultimate fantasy series of books, which are just all about how you can get places by being able to talk to people and empathize with them. Like more so than any other of the kind of really well-known fantasy books that you read where it's like, things are all to do with sort of like, oh, they've they've done like a cool trick and like missions and quests and so forth. And it's like, yes, this does have kind of mission-like subplots and there are, you know, magical weapons and so forth. But the whole point of Lyra is that, you know, she's really good at talking to people and understanding them. And the books also have like a really clearly easy to understand method of showing you how people interact with each other, which obviously is just the concept of literary fiction. <laughs> but <Yes>. like <laughs> but like if you're like a 12-year-old who's picked up a book because they think it might have a dragon in it. I feel like this is sort of the gateway drug book to being able to read other books of that type. <laughs> I mean, I cannot imagine reading this book as a child. I would have done if if it had come out when I was 12. I mean, I was reading I started reading The Lyman Chronicles when I was 13 and 
fuck did I not understand them, but <laughs> I would have read this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess 12 isn't, it, well, the last, I'm trying to remember how old we were. We were I 10 mean, or 11. Yeah, Spyglass came out when we were 10 or 11, yeah. and we were reading it then. But this is, this is beyond that. This is more laborious to read, I think. But also yeah. it's like, when you think about what bookworms we were at 12, like the the sheer volume of books I was reading, like, like 12 year olds read Dickens. If a 12 year old can read Dickens, they can read this. Oh, not like I couldn't have, and I'm sure I would have liked it. And yeah. I read the His Dark Materials again when I was 17, I think, and then obviously have again as an adult, but 17 was old enough that I was like, wow, I definitely didn't understand all of this at the time. But I feel like this really, you would read it again as an adult and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> wow, I sure didn't understand like half of what that was. There's a, there's a lot of very useful educational moments about what it's like to be living in an encroaching fascist state, which is really the the overarching theme of this book. There's no data on this, but it would be interesting to know how many young people actually are reading this as opposed to people our age, because obviously he's kind of writing them for us. But I hope the young people are still reading his dark materials. They're my favorite books well, from when I was a kid. I think a lot of people so, will get them for, for Christmas. Yep. Very true. Uh, thank you for listening. I assume you've all read this book, if you still are, but if you haven't, um, go get them to read. Uh, if you did not see on Twitter, if you want to read more stuff, I will be hosting a big Little Women book club on our Patreon for the next month or so. Uh, Gav will not be participating because you have never read Little Women and do not know what happens in it, which is amazing to me. I know one plot point, but I don't know who it's about. So, <laughs> yeah. So we will be reading the book. I think four installments, and then I'm gonna watch all the big movie adaptations and write about them also. So you can join along for that as well, and it'll go right up to the weekend before the new movie comes out. I think was the calendar. All of that information is on Patreon, and the first post will either be up by the time you're listening to this or shortly after so get little women and start reading along also on patreon is a listener mailbag episode that we recorded last week so we have lots of answers to people's questions there if you would like to listen uh we have various things coming up soon including a watchmen episode if you have been watching watchmen you should do that because it rules it's great uh we will also be talking about knives out when that comes out and uh talented mr ripley is having its 20th anniversary soon and if you've never seen it uh, you should also get on that because it's great. So we have lots of lots of various things to discuss coming up, and we hope you will join us for them. Uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, if you would like to rate or review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it as ever. Share us with your friends, your family, your Twitter followers. We love to be listened to. So uh, anything you can do to get us out there will be great. And uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, you can find my writing on The Daily Dot, which includes all of the Watchmen coverage you can read before our episode. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.